Hello. Hello. Hola. Hola. Bonjour. Здравствуйте. Bienvenidos and welcome to Radio Natura. Radio Natura. To Radio Natura. Voices from around the world, bringing you all things related to nature and sustainability. Rethinking what it means to live in peace with nature and imagining a brighter future. Brought to you by the Pax Natura Foundation. Hello, welcome to Radio Natura. I'm Gwyn Glasser, and this is episode two of our two-part series, The Philosophical Gap, From Good Intentions to Climate Action. This episode is an interdisciplinary discussion on the topic of motivating climate action between myself, Dr. Pauline Femster, and Dr. Robert Glasser. Dr. Glasser is a policy expert, and uh, Dr. Femster, as you will remember from our last episode, is an expert in philosophy and the environment. But I'll leave it to them to introduce themselves properly. I hope you enjoy. Pauline, would you mind doing a small self-introduction? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm Pauline Femister, Professor of History of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, and I teach um, History of Philosophy, but I also teach um, Ecological Philosophy, or Deep Ecology. Yeah, uh, 17th century philosophy is my main area. The 17th century philosophers had a lot of, or can provide a lot of inspiration for environmental philosophy. As, as we touched on in the previous episode, right? Yeah. In depth. Well, not quite. Um, <laughs> into, but yeah. And over to you, Robert. And I'm Robert Glasser. Uh, I am a, the head of uh, climate, and po- climate and Security Policy Center in Australia called the, uh, it's at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is a bit of a think tank in in Canberra, um, and I focus on climate and security issues. And before that, I worked in the UN. Before that, I worked for a large international NGO called Care International, and and further back, other jobs. Uh, but yes, I think that's the those are the main ones to highlight. Great, thanks very much. And I should also add, uh, Pauline is author of Leibniz in the Environment, which is a wonderful read. And uh, Robert Glasser, in his time in the UN, was serving as the Assistant Secretary General and Special Representative of the Secretary General. So now that that's out of the way, um, we've got a really exciting, I'm very excited for this personally. I think this is a really exciting combination of disciplines, um, two really cool angles to approach the same subject from. I w- I'm wondering, Robert, if you could just start out by giving any reactions you had to the previous episode that you've listened to and, and just to see any thoughts, comments, maybe even criticisms or, or critiques or objections to what you heard. We spoke earlier and you posed some questions to me and I would love for you to pose those sorts of questions to Pauline because I think she would have some good answers. Okay, yeah, thanks, Gwen. Uh, well, for me, I really enjoyed that podcast. I, I really related to the, the idea of connecting in nature and having a bit of an epiphany because I think I've had that happen to me in my life uh, um, just this, uh, maybe a couple of times, but only twice where I felt this deep connection at a really fundamental level that uh, made everything okay and wonderful. Um, So I like that idea. 
and I like that idea of being in nature and making a connection. I think that's really important. That's been important in my life. And it still is important in my life. I, I would not want to live somewhere where I couldn't get out into nature in some way fairly easily. Um, the podcast, the topic was essentially exploring this question of how you can have such clear information about a problem, an environmental problem in this case, and how that's still not enough to motivate people to act. And I really enjoyed Pauline's responses to that uh, drawing on philosophy. Was it Leibniz? It's Leibniz, uh, yes. Yeah. German yeah. yeah, that was really interesting. And, and But as you were speaking, Pauline, I was thinking of all these uh, examples I've seen in my life where, uh, particularly in the climate sphere, climate change sphere, where the facts are very clear and there's still people still don't act. And I, I thought, I remember thinking of a number of reasons why the facts may be clear in some objective sense, but where people, where I've seen people haven't motivated. And yeah, I had about four, I think there are about four or so, four, maybe even five thoughts that jumped to mind when you were, when you were mentioning those things. So I'd be happy to share those uh, at some point if you would like and as part of our discussion. I hope that you, you do. Do you want to share some of them just now? Okay, yeah. Um, there, there is a sense, what I've seen in the climate movement, and a lot of uh, climate communication specialists focus on this, is that if the message is really dire, then people, and, and there's no hope, there's a sense of hopelessness, then uh, people essentially give up. So the facts are very clear. It's really drastic and dreadful what lies ahead. Um, and of course, if they do act, they can decrease the dreadfulness. Um, but we're already committed to a dreadful future because of the previous warming uh, greenhouse gas emissions, just because of the inertia in the climate system. But it's that if there's a sense of hopelessness, then even in the face of very clear information, uh, people are just despondent and they don't, I've seen that they don't do things. So a big part of the movement has been to, um, been to uh, create a sense of optimism that there's an op opportunity in this, as well as, of course, a need to prevent some serious impacts. So that was one point. The other was, um, I was thinking as you were commenting about this, Pauline, that um, as with cigarettes and the, the cigarette companies, the tobacco companies and cigarette smoking, the climate, uh, big carb fossil fuel emitters have been actively disseminating disinformation. So today, you know, in an era of fake news and echo news echo chambers through social media, I think there's also this uh, sense, this question about what are the facts we can rely on? And so there are facts, but then I see videos, experts being interviewed with different facts that are underplaying the seriousness of the problem or explaining why we can wait another 20 years before we reduce greenhouse gases. So that's, um, that's not a fundamental issue, but um, it does explain why it's hard to motivate people in our current environment with the, so much of these alter this alternative news. When we come back to the first one and the issue of hope, and hmm. in, I think Arnie Ness focused on Spinoza because his philosophy was is termed a philosophy of joy 
So he was really interested in trying to get across the idea that engaging with nature and being out in the wild and just enjoying life is, is crucial and a way to make the best of our, our lives. And with Leibniz, his is a philosophy of optimism. This, after all, is the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> and um, so there, too, we have the idea that there is hope and that there is some kind of progression towards the future, but that sometimes we take a couple of steps backwards um, in order to make way for a different path. And in one way of looking at the environmental crisis, that is what is happening now. We've taken a big step back because we're disengaged from nature. But if we re-engage, then we can do so in a much more positive way and helpful way and joyful way, optimistic way, than we did in the past. So in the past, we perhaps used nature, we lived in it, but not with it. <laughs> and we didn't really realize how much our own identities are bound up with where we are and what our surroundings are like and the other creatures that we engage with. And once we have that consciousness amongst the general population, I think is what's really needed. And to come to the second question, it's needed amongst the tobacco giants, the heads of those corporations, the heads of the fossil fuel companies. Um, and if we could get them to realize that we're all in this together, it's an interconnected world, and that it's not just humans, but also all of life across the whole of the planet that we need to be concerned with and, and to care for. And that that would be a joyful, optimistic way forward. That's both. That's really interesting because it's both a, an uh, uh, analysis and explanation of how we got into this mess, that separation from nature, and also a suggestion about how we can fix that problem. And what that made me think about was, you know, I, it's interesting. Some of the most uh, the most active environmental activists are hunters, fisher fisher people who are fisher, uh, fishing and people who are essentially out in nature yes. because they appreciate, they don't want all the moose to be dead or all the elk to be gone. Uh, they don't want the trout, the salmons, the salmon not to spawn. Or, and uh, so they, there's a connection there with people who traditionally are also politically very conservative and associated with kind of, uh, sorry, politically conservative, not conservative in other respects, conservation. Um, but uh, yeah, that there's an opportunity there to engage with people like that. And actually some of the strongest in Australia, we have a lot of climate deniers um, and they tend to be on the right wing uh, politically. Uh, but the farmers are the easiest group to get through to on climate because they're seeing the impacts. They see that the drought's lasting longer and uh, there's torrential downpours instead of steady rain, they know the temperature is increasing. And so because they're working with the land, they have direct knowledge about what's happening to them. And so that's where the movement, the climate movement's going now in Australia is to try and engage those people that have that connection with nature that you were describing. That's very interesting, yes. And they, they, they realize that they can't 
deplete all the stocks because everything has to keep on going and we need some kind of balance. Um, ironically, also just another story, uh, you know, the Aboriginal, Ab Aboriginals in Australia have had 80,000 years of living in nature and in balance, relative balance with nature, although they've done a lot of altering of nature, the environment. I was in a little community, Aboriginal community in far north Queensland called Woodjaw Woodjaw, a really beautiful place. And they just had this massive flood uh, that has, that separated, divided the town in two. And the, the young men were having to ferry the elderly people across the flooded water with water up to their chins, basically carrying the elderly while the local crocodile had free reign. But anyway, in the, in the midst of this, uh, Uncle Billy, who was the elder, was I was told when I visited, was up at their sacred waterfall, throwing debris back into the river and yelling at his ancestors, saying, why didn't you warn us of this? Oh, and, uh -huh. which is such a such a poignant image. Uh, and but it, it also this is this idea that with climate change is such a departure from at least 50,000 years of human experience yeah. that even people who are relatively in harmony and constantly embedded in nature now find it are finding that very extremely difficult. Yes. Look, you're, you're mentioning. <laughs> excuse me, you're mentioning the ancestors, um, brings to the foreground the fact that it's how people acted in the past that has got us to the position that we're in now. But how we act now is going to um, establish and determine how the future is. So it's really up to us now to start living well. And then the question comes, how do we live well? And what do we have to do to live well? And this is where philosophy can, has a lot to contribute to that. It has a lot to, to, yes, a lot to offer there because it's concerned with values and, um, well, I would say, based on, on Leibniz's philosophy, it's a philosophy of love and care and empathic connection. I think one of the problems with philosophy is that it can be very abstract and yeah. it's not generally available to the massive populations uh, but I do think that if the ideas get put out there somehow or other they get disseminated perhaps too slowly throughout the rest of the society. But Pauline that's actually that's a question uh, that I wanted to ask you also which is that um, in a way our current reality has been shaped by all those ideas that preceded us we just don't even realize they're connected to yeah. original thoughts. So how much of the, and all the all the people in the scientific revolution? Um, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, and that divorce so, of um, mind and body really can be largely attributed to uh, Descartes' philosophy, where he said, I, wonder, "I think, therefore I am." So my body doesn't matter. It's ephemeral. It's going to disintegrate, but my immortal soul will continue, and that's what's really important. And we need to concentrate for Descartes. That we have to concentrate on the necessary truths and not the contingent ones. But of course, climate change is contingent. I, I think it's interesting that your experience has also put emphasis on the importance of having a joyful attitude towards, or at the very least, not having this kind of, you know, having some sort of positive emotional connection with your future and, you know, the development of the environment. 
And, and I think that's really interesting as well that you guys connected that to not you you as well brought brought in the connection not just to thinking positively about climate change, but also that being related to having a positive relationship with your immediate environment. You said that hunters, or you gave the example that some hunters are some of the most active activists. <laughs> um, and I think that's really interesting as well. If we, you know, I, I refer our listeners to Radio Natura's previous podcasts. Um, if you listen to particularly the Jane Goodall podcast, she is talking about uh, a lot of the concepts she describes about an interconnected earth and her intense emotional connection to the work that she's doing really sound a lot like um, a well-structured ecosophy or, or a personal philosophy of the environment, like uh, the ones we discussed in the previous episode. So I think that's really wonderful that uh, there's that commonality across both of your disciplines. Although that does still not quite give us a mechanism for how to achieve that joy. I, I, and one of the things I'm hoping to achieve over these two episodes is to give listeners a series of steps or things they can be doing, actionable information by which they can develop their own Jane Goodall perspective. They can develop their own personal philosophy or emotional connection like what Jane Goodall has. Maybe just to try and pose a question about that, I wonder if there are some personality traits or other aspects of individuals that make them more, make them able to find that more easily than others. You know, there's some people who are in their heads all the time, and maybe maybe for them it's harder to do this other than intellectually, maybe, rather than from a perspective of feeling and epiphany or whatever. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Pauline, do you have uh, some thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I would agree that it is certainly easier for some people than for others. But also, it's, it's possible that it's just, um, it, it could be quite easy for some people, but they just don't think of it. And I've been, as you were speaking, Gwen, I was thinking about the experiences of lockdown. And with the, the grounding of the planes and things, everything became very quiet and the traffic um, disappeared and people were out walking and so many people experienced what we would like them to experience of that engagement with the natural world and they were enjoying it and they experienced that joy but then what happened when we started to unlock the cars came back and it's like the that ex those experiences are just now distant memories and how do we keep those experiences to the front forefront of our minds and that joy how do you keep it going when there are all these other distractions and people can just go to the shops and um, just get on with life as they did before in those old destructive ways I have an idea about that based on what I've seen here in Canberra so there we, we have this water, um, stormwater system that basically has these uh, streams that run through, they're cement lined. And the Greens government in Canberra decided to turn those into wetlands to help channel the floodwaters. It was actually a flood control measure, but also created this beautiful public space, which now has a pond and ducks and frogs and is packed with people from the neighborhood now that would not have, maybe they'd walk through that space on the way home or something, but they would not linger there. And similarly, Gwyn knows our neighbors, Tess and Tony, who are 
our friends who are actually in the other room right now with our friends, they have this little, there was a little kind of a, it's, it was a park, but it was really just this rather nasty space with a few trees and a lot of eucalyptus rubble on the ground. And they put in these, um, a water harvesting system that creates these little dams up and down the spot. And within a week after that's been in the park, this place was filled with children playing in the mud and with the water and the parents sitting next to them having picnics. And so we can, if, and, and you know, that's so valuable if you could quantify the value of that in our economic terms in some way, uh, you know, maybe that's the solution we're heading to, the, to, to appreciate, you know, these intent to try and move away from narrow definitions of economics or conceptualizations of economics or and something. Some, and some governments are now talking in terms of a, a GDP that is calculable in terms of well-being, happiness and well-being. Yeah. yeah. So that does raise a question. I know, Gwyn, you're trying to answer the question, how can we help people have these, connect, make these connections? And it does this, but I guess it, this is coming back to why don't they have the connection? And I wonder how much our economic model um, has contributed to that because it is, uh, you know, it does seem to be designed to uh, maximize productivity and, and that's defined very narrowly. So people don't have their weekends to themselves anymore. You know, in Australia, we used to have barbecues every weekend at the beach or in a park or in the bush and we don't do that, that doesn't happen as much anymore because people are working longer hours. So is this, does this lead to discussion about Marx as well as other things? Maybe not Marx, but the economy. <laughs> but it does lead into to the question of values again. And do you, do you value just the, the strength of your bank balance or do you value your connections with people and with other non-living things? I think we're acting under an, uh, an assumption that I would like to highlight um, because I think it's very important and quite central to a lot of the things we've just said. I think the assumption is that nature will provide us with this joy. And I don't think it's a difficult one to prove. I mean, I'm sure everyone has had a joyful experience in nature, or I hope they have. Um, but there is, you know, uh, Robert brought up the wetlands in order to show that some kind of local policy decisions can create an environment that's more likely to foster these, these relationships with nature. But we are still acting under the assumption that, it, that given that option, um, people will take it over playing a video game or trying to make more money or you know, being committed to their work or whatever. So I, I was wondering if we could do anything to maybe try to substantiate that assumption. Maybe Pauline or Robert, if you have any maybe anecdotes or, or pieces of information or, or references from your experience that, that could demonstrate our tendency to feel joy in nature. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have a, a very vivid memory of a talk. Um, she showed this video and it was a boy who was in care and he was, he was just oh, uncontrollable. And he was in a room and it was a very sparse barren room, just white walls and a radiator and the photo was the, the counsellor was trying to speak to this boy and he just had this stick and he was bang, 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 bang <laughs> on the radiator and just he was, he couldn't communicate with him. 
but they had taken him out into the forest and the next video of him was of this wonderful child sitting by a campfire talking away very very happy the same child but two different environments and that mm. illustrated to me that um the the just the 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 value of the external environment in shaping our emotions and our feelings and our engagement yeah that also reminds me of another example we have a program here you might have it in Scotland as well where the you take where basically problem children usually from uh, at least inner city and often gang members gang neighborhoods are taken away for a few weeks into the bush yeah. and they're basically camping and it's it can be transformative, transformative for them. yes is that what you had in mind Gwen the um these kind of examples of that transformational power of nature. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I, I would like to give the listeners who haven't had an experience of that, some sort of grounds for going out and actually looking for it. I personally have had some wonderful experiences in nature. Um, Robert, you mentioned your epiphanies, which I would like to ask you about later. And Pauline, obviously, of course, has devoted you know, a large part of her career to it. So Pauline, this, come up, this came up briefly earlier and we're kind of touching on it now the sorts of criticisms that people could raise against this this sort of perspective this sort of angle that we're taking um one of them is maybe that you know is what i raised earlier that there's an assumption that nature will actually create joy and will actually motivate you and that's a difficult thing to quantify so can we think of any other objections that that you know maybe someone's listening and they're thinking oh this is yeah this is a nice idea but I have another colleague who you said it was difficult to quantify and this this colleague she was working with pigs and she's a scientist and she has managed to um, find a method a scientific objective method of measuring the happiness of pigs <laughs> and she is now working with Waitrose supermarkets in connection with their hen suppliers and um, egg suppliers <laughs> to determine that you know the, the eggs are coming from pigs that are happy rather than pigs that are not. So the, these ideas are, are catching on. Françoise Benelsfelder is her name. But yes, the, ha the happy pigs. And we can quantify it if we wish. I bet you could also quantify decrease in stress from being outside and listen, just listening to wind and birds, for yes. example wind in the trees and birds, I bet I would be very surprised if someone, if you, if, a, if you took a stressed person and put them somewhere in a beautiful setting like that, that within probably 15 minutes, they, their stress levels would plummet. Yeah. Well, th this woman that I was talking about, I'm going to have to give, find you her name. <laughs> uh, Catherine Thompson Ward, or Ward Thompson, Catherine Ward Thompson is the woman. And she and this other colleague, Jenny Rowe, had also done experiments where they got people to, they did a controlled experiment where some people went outside 20 minutes a day into nature and the other ones didn't. And they did it in the mornings. And what they found was that the cortisol levels returned to what they should be. They rose quickly in the morning and then went right down. And that wasn't happening with the ones who had not gone to any green space. 
And interestingly, what they found was that it didn't have to be a big expansive green space. They found that even those people who were just walking down local streets, if those streets had hedges, <laughs> their cortisol low levels stabilized in contrast to the ones who were walking down barren streets that did not have hedges. And the introduction of hedges onto local streets seems to be a very, very simple thing to, to do. <laughs> but the research was bearing out, it was actually having an effect on people's stress levels. So we can tell people that be out in nature, it will, it will reduce your stress levels. But we can also say that having nature around is good for your health in other ways, because, for example, it's a way of decreasing heat in cities. And with global warming, greenery is an, a really important factor in, in, in the microclimates in urban centers. Um, it's also essential to reduce disaster, disaster risk like flooding, as we mentioned, the storm water system and the wetlands created as a way of managing the floods. Yeah. and mangroves and you know there are a whole range of uh, nature aspects of nature that actually are not don't just relieve our stress but also protect us in ways that we don't appreciate enough yes yes and need to be publicized more yeah so there's this yeah. indirect environmental impact it seems like there are two kind of environmental impact or two impacts of having nature in our surroundings one is the impact on our mood this fostering of joy and a, and a more positive relationship with nature and the second is the the impacts of the the physical impact of that of implementing kind of more parks, more hedges, is that this will positively affect microclimates and and help mitigate the effects of global warming. Is there what we talked about in the first episode is a third potential environmental impact of this relationship, which was that in fostering that relationship with nature that will motivate you in other aspects of your life. So I'd like to try to bring us back to that a little bit. And I'm wondering if we could talk about maybe critiques to that perspective. Any reasons why people might think that that is not adequate or appropriate as climate action. Basically, critiques to the previous episode. Because we, we concluded in the previous episode that a very good start would be to go out and just be in nature and just start paying attention and, and foster your relationship in that way, which will then in other aspects of your life spill over and make you more personally motivated to to act. So I'm wondering if you guys could think of any any objections to that. In, in relation to your, the, the second point that you made, you were talking about, oh, I've forgotten what it was now, but I was thinking the the relationship between the mind and the body they're not as separate as Descartes would have wanted us to, to say. Spinoza will say mind and body are just two different perspectives on the same thing. Leibniz will say mind and body are always in harmony. The state of the mind is expressed by the state of the body and the state of the body is expressed. Um, the mind expresses the state of the body and the body expresses the state of the mind. So you can mm. kind of separate the two out. So the cortisol levels that's indicative of the, the physical effect on the body and there's a mental correlate to it. We see it with children taking sugar, that has an effect on the body and it'll make them go hyper. <laughs> Used to happen with my son and I, I had to stop giving him coke because he, 15 minutes after he, <laughs> he was 
stopping off the walls. So, and some additives were the same. You cannot divorce the mental and the physical in the way that Descartes had wanted us to do. So I think philosophically, it makes perfect sense to say that if we can improve our mental well-being, our physical well-being will also improve, and vice versa, if we improve our physical and uh, well-being, then our mental well-being will follow. And I think there we have the route to um, the motivational issue in that the mind in being in wanting to do something, when it's in proper harmony with the body, the body will act. It will take steps to, to implement the things that the mind is deciding that it desires or wills. I think the, the thought that came to my mind when you asked that question, Gwen, was actually a thought that also occurred to me in the first podcast when I was listening to the first part, the discussion with Pauline that you had previously, which was that there does also seem to be this idea that if you can share something with another human being, that sense of creating a community around this issue around nature and appreciation, that there's something about that that seems to motivate action, or, or maybe there's a synergy there that, that is generated from that connection with another human being in nature who has the same appreciation. So yeah, I just wanted to share that. And I, I've seen that effect. Uh, in fact, my wife, Kirsten, is joining, you know, has been feeling very, very depressed about climate policy issues, particularly with our current government. And she's now co-founded a group called the Women's Climate Congress, which is now brought together a whole variety of women who feel the same way, who feel a strong connection to the environment. And they feel less despondent because they're with each other working on this problem and trying to devise ways of raising the profile of these issues. So, yeah, I don't know. It's not maybe not quite a direction you wanted to head in in your line of question, but it did occur to me when you mentioned that. No, that, that's very interesting. And that this, that kind of a community can also help foster this positive forward momentum, this motivation. So maybe as well as taking time out in nature, we could also be advising a kind of a more open dialogue, trying to make it more commonplace in kind of in general conversations to be able to express appreciation for nature and to be able to kind of share your quote unquote subjective experience to make that more mainstream, to feel that companionship and that, that, you know, that universal, universal, universalness, universality, universality. Thank you, Pauline. That universality that is really kind of the basis of, of this podcast, I think universality of the experience of nature and what it can do for us and why it's important. Um, Robert, I'd love to hear some of the other points that you had. In the beginning, you mentioned five points or three or four points about situations in which people have the knowledge but aren't motivated. And I'd love to dig into those. I think we can already deal with the disinformation, misinformation one just by saying those aren't the people where where we're talking about right now. We're gearing towards the people who already have the information and don't act, and they have the good information, they have the right information, but are still not motivated. So what, what I would like to do is address the gap between right information and action. There's just one thing I would say about the disinformation in that its very presence um, gives people an excuse not to act. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and yeah, I, I think the, there's another related angle to this is that if if the issue is is a polarizing issue in society, and particularly today with social media, the issue of climate change for many on the right is now entangled in identity, in their identity, their political and social identities. For them to accept the facts of climate change, when in fact they're also getting all these alternate facts, but for them to accept it, they have to feel as though they have to reject their own identity, the friendships they have with people, the uh, the idea that they want small government, not big government. There are a whole range of ideas that are now wrapped together that make even in the face of facts, it impossible for people to act on them in the way that you think they you would ordinarily think they would. So anyway, that's just another that that isn't one of the ones I thought of before. But I don't know if you have any reactions to that, Pauline. In relation to those people, it may be a better idea just to put the whole climate issue to one side and say things like, look, you could have a much better life. You could save a lot of money if you went down this route rather than that route. You know, you have just installed an air source heat pump and it will save a lot of money. And yeah, yeah, the climate deniers, they're not going to deny that if they had an air source heat pump, then they might actually save a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's a good, it's a very good point. The other one though that I was going to mention is that, um, you know, if climate change, part of the problem is that climate change is still seen somewhat as a distant threat. And this is another reason why it's hard to motivate action. So just as a thought exercise, if we imagine that Comet were heading to Earth and all the world's best astronomers said it was absolutely going to hit the Earth on, on on January 22nd, 2022, and they were certain that it would cause instantly cause all those impacts we picture for the worst of climate change, death, you know, 50% of the biodiversity gone, temperatures skyrocketing, sea level, you know, extreme storm, you know, all those things that the worst possible things you could imagine. I suspect there would be global international cooperation to try and intercept the comet. So, I think the fact that there isn't a particular time and moment when this threat is arriving makes it harder in the case of climate change. I think also because there isn't an enemy. Sometimes I think people motivate, act quickly if they sense an enemy. Um, the comet is the enemy in this case, or in a, or Nazi Germany, or or whatever. But in the case of climate, we're all the enemy in a sense that it's it's our whole way of living and our reliance on fossil fuels. And I think that's partly why the, actually, I think that's partly why the climate movement has focused on two degrees of warming to create an artificial deadline when the comet strikes in effect, because it isn't linked to the science particularly. And also why they focus on attacking the fossil fuel industry as the enemy, even though of course there are many, many enemies on this issue and they're you know, so yeah. Anyway, that was a bit of a garbled presentation. No, no, no. that's really interesting. That? So it sounds like there's a complexity. There's a problem with the issue that is complexity. It's difficult to focus on goals. Really, it seems like there's kind of no value clarity, and that is a barrier to action. But I think there's a danger in going down that route of trying to um, mitigate against disaster or potential disaster and creating fear 
and having the enemy because what is really fundamentally needed from a deep ecological perspective is a, a total change of lifestyle. And by setting up an enemy and setting up a crisis that needs to be avoided, once the crisis has been avoided, once the enemy has disappeared or been ousted, we'll just go back like we did with yeah. the lockdown. We'll just go back to where we were before. And before we know it, we're going to be back with another crisis and another another enemy. That's a good point. Really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So the, what we need is a sustainable change, a lifestyle change that, that takes us off the path towards disaster and keeps us on the path away from it. <laughs> And I think those sort of fundamental philosophical questions are, are crucial there. And, but also the, the focus on optimism and joy comes into play there, because if you make it pleasurable and give people a vision, look how things could be. You know, this is what we need to do in order to get there rather than there. I think that would be a healthier path for us. That idea of the reinforcement, the positive reinforcement, either just from the joy, um, but also there are other positive reinforcements that motivate a fundamental change in outlook and activism in a way. For example, my father's generation wouldn't think twice about driving in a car and rolling down the window and chucking rubbish out the window. But that doesn't happen anymore. People know that you don't do that. There have been ad campaigns saying uh, don't throw rubbish away or don't smoke cigarettes or put wear a hat in Australia, slip, slop, slap, sunscreen on. So yeah, there is this, there's the joy of experiencing it directly, like the joy of being in nature and of not wanting to return to the smoky world. And there's also ways governments can reinforce that message, I think, if they're thinking responsibly, if they get, if they get it as well. And uh, to reinforce that and to encourage people to get out into nature and to experience it and so on. The four-day week would be a very good idea there to give people more leisure time. Yep, I have a suggestion and I would love to hear your, both of your thoughts on this. So it seems like we have this issue of there kind of not being an easy enemy, an easy other, an easy target to focus on. Um, and Pauline raised the, the great objection that the problem with that is it doesn't represent a huge kind of systematic change. It just represents one objective. But there also seems to be something where it, it's difficult. It, it seems that it's difficult for us to act when there are too many objectives. Um, it seems we kind of need the, or the mainstream approach, the approach that maybe governments take even slip, stop, slap. You know, that's a slogan. You're simplifying. You know, you're taking a single goal. You're, make, you're making it consumable, bite sized, and then you're feeding it to the public so people can easily incorporate it into their lives. But I wonder, I mean, a lot of environmental issues are very multifaceted and interplay with each other in complex ways. Like, for example, taking a canvas bag to the shop, you know, while that doesn't produce as much plastic waste, it produces some hundreds or thousands times more um, energy to create a canvas bag than it does to create a plastic bag. So in taking a canvas bag, you're helping one environmental issue, but also exacerbating another. You know, if you own two canvas bags, you've already it was already better to use plastic bags, maybe. So I guess what I'm suggesting is that maybe the one of the advantages of the deep ecological approach is that it does create others or set large-scale objectives as much as the whatever the quote-unquote shallower approach, which is the more mainstream governmental slip, slip, slap. Uh, while it incorporates those objectives and acknowledges them as important, 
its main emphasis is on building your kind of own personal your personal relationship with nature so that when you throw rubbish out the window you don't do it because the government slogan told you not to you rather you feel you know you want to keep your environment clean and uh, I, I think the advantage of that is you don't have this problem where once you've defeated the enemy, once you've conquered the objective, you resume. So I was wondering if you guys could comment on that. Pauline, if I've interpreted that correctly, and Robert, if that reflects your experience professionally. You have expressed that very well. The idea is to take your, the values into your own being, make them part of your identity, and then you're motivated to act from within rather than because you're being exhorted to do so from outside and that's more long lasting. I think the problem for the deep ecological movement is that the vast majority of people haven't the inclination to even sit down and think about their values. And I, I do acknowledge that that is a, is a problem. But I gain hope from the idea that the fact that we are in an interconnected world. So when you have some people thinking about those values and they're changing their lifestyles, that does have a ripple effect on others in the society. And then those societies have effects on other societies. The main problem there is that although the ripple effect happens, it's very slow and perhaps too slow for the kind of action that we really need now. We need the shallow and the deep. But the afterward, it's like mind and body have to come together. We need both. Because otherwise, yeah. well, otherwise we'll do lots of things that we think are going to have good effects and they won't because the science hasn't worked out that it's not something right. that we're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, that was the way you formulated the question and some, some of Pauline's, your answers, Pauline, you formulated the question, Gwen, and some of Pauline's answers reminded me of this debate in the climate movement, which is, you know, there are some who say we that the what we need to do is use the market for example put a price on carbon and then the market itself or uh, reduce the cost of renewables and then the technology will spread and will solve the climate problem versus maybe more of a deep ecologist's approach which would be to say it's the system itself that needs a fundamental transformation and so the proponents of the first will say we can achieve 1.5 degrees if we just put a price on carbon and do these things and use the existing system to achieve that. And then others saying that that's not the fundamental change that's, I mean, it might be carbon this week, but it's going to be something else next week. And what we need is a more fundamental change. It's sort of almost, you know, I don't know whether it's, it's selling the deep ecologist short to describe one as practical and one as ideal or idealistic what do you think of that Pauline? Oh I think the, the deep ecologist is the is the idealist but we need both and they have to to work in harmony and the you know the the practical solutions without the deep ecological input are not going to be as effective as they could be and vice versa the deep ecological without the practical is not going to be as effective as it could be so keeping within the system and the, the deep systematic change that's needed. I think there's a, there's a change of, of human consciousness that is needed and a, a completely different way of looking at our place in the world and our role within it, our relationships, not just to humans, but to the rest of the world, because it is an integrated system. 
And climate change shows us that, the pandemic has shown us that, that everything is, is affected by what happens in any one thing. It has ramifications across the rest of the world. Anything that happens in our own consciousness is going to have effects within across the rest of the world because our mind and our bodies are, like it or not, they're connected. <laughs> so what we think is going to have an effect on um, the environments that we're in and that those environments are going to have ripple effects throughout the world. That's why I've watched your po podcast on Indonesia um, or listened to it. Um, and that's why what we're doing here now is having effects in Indonesia and bad effects. Yeah. And once we kind of, we have to really take that, those, that interconnectedness on board. And I think too, there's, the shallow ecologists tend to focus just on the human and human relationships and how we're going to keep the human race going and what's going to happen. But the human race needs every other creature. <laughs> Species reductions are, are very, very dangerous because we do need the whole system is an intricate, interconnected system and we need to care for it all, not just for the human bits. Not, not and, just for human beings. And I and think bodies. we haven't quite got there yet. It's starting, but we're not there yet. Um, but I, also, I think a lot of people, they want to care and they do care, but they also don't know how. So people are quite happily recycle all sorts of things and they'll do their bit, but they don't know what else they could be doing. And they, that's yeah. where governments could come in and help. Yeah, so I guess that means we encourage all, I guess we have a reference point that the, we have our eyes on the prize, so to speak, or well, even that's kind of an economic uh, formulation, <laughs> but, but anyway, you know what I mean? We see the, the, the North Star, the vision, or yeah. the vision and uh, there are a lot of paths that some move us more directly to that path than others. Some may look like they're moving in the direction, but will swerve away. But, but uh, yeah, but, but the important thing is to keep our eyes on that uh, vision, keep hold that vision as the reference point for choices we make. Could I just bring up, um, just to add to that, Robert, I mean, earlier you said you called the kind of changes within the system, like a carbon tax versus a kind of a full scale reconceptualizing of society. You called one of those, you know, you, you called the you called one practical and the other ideal and i just wanted to suggest something it seems i mean you've spoken in your uh in your aspie policy guns and money podcast policy guns and money podcast um it was a recent one talking about cop 26 cop 26 you mentioned that the international timelines are way off you've also mentioned this earlier in the podcast i think that our kind of political targets aren't really linked to the science. And so I, I might, you know, I would like to suggest that instead of calling one practical and ideal, we have, you know, the, the political target seems to me to actually be impractical in many respects because it's not linked to practical science and the practical implications of meeting that target are actually quite dire. Um, and that in fact, it might be practical to set our sights a little bit higher. Um, what would you say to that? I'd say that I agree with you. The terminology isn't the best terminology. 
I guess the idea is that fundamentally one is a more incremental change that maybe seems politically more achievable than a transformation in consciousness, for example, which has, I guess we've had examples of that historically as well. But so I guess I agree with you, Gwen, about the choice of words isn't quite right. That what I was saying about the COP, which is in, which I find really fascinating, you know, a number of countries in Glasgow have now committed to net zero by 2050. But the science that they're drawing on to make that commitment actually only achieves a 50% chance of achieving net zero by that date. If we really want something like a 70 or 80% chance, it has to be net zero by 2040. Um, so that's sort of an example of, you know, a scientist wouldn't say with something so serious as climate change, we don't want to leave it 50-50 <laughs> that we're going to achieve it by that date. We really would want something closer to probably 90% chance. So anyway, yeah, but there are a lot of examples of that, including the two degrees of warming issue, which was not a science. The scientists didn't come up with that. That was uh, more of a policy, although there's some, some links to the science. But anyway, that's another point, another issue. And of course, the science might be wrong and we might end up at the tipping point far earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. So I guess I also wanted to then highlight that, you know, um, I think one of the things that Ness brings up, Pauline, in his deep ecology is that he says that while what he's suggesting is quite extreme and maybe ideal, it's also our only option. So, you know, I'd like to suggest that maybe the ideal option is the practical option because it's the only option. Um, and any compromise on that would be unacceptable because of the loss of human life and loss of biodiversity, environmental damage. Is that too extreme a stance? Well, I would say the, the two still have to work in, in conjunction with one another because the, the, the deep ecologist, if you like, sets the vision. Right. And the, the science and the, the practical implements it, but they have to work together. I was going to answer that, actually make the same point in a slightly different way, which was, I think in a way it depends on the time frame you're looking at, because in, you could, in the short term, putting a price on carbon may solve the, short, the immediate problem you're trying to solve, but not the fundamental one that society is, is depending on to be solved, that we need to solve to, to thrive in the years ahead. So... Um, yeah, so maybe it's something around the, um, I think, Pauline, you said the reference point in a way that they, they both need to be doing it. Um, and one can seem practical because it's uh, the, within the time frame, it's something that's achieved more, more likely to be achieved, maybe. But they are operating on different timescales because the, the, the deep ecologist is, is thinking far more long term. And if you think about it, Ness was, Ness was writing in the 1970s. And it's, you know, the ideas of burbling away and the, they have kind of um, sort of, um, what's the word? They, they've kind of seeped into the general consciousness of, of society, but they're not quite yet at the top. But I, I've, I have a hope <laughs> that it'll be like an avalanche and you've got, you know, you, the environmental activists are there and they're thinking and they're talking and they're, but at some point that's going to tip over and the avalanche will come and people will get it. <laughs> I'm, with, I'm with you on that, Pauline. That's exactly what I hope. I could share a story 
I had a I had a meeting with um, Desmond Tutu, who was a South African apartheid um, key in the apartheid movement, and uh, we were talking about climate change. And, and I was saying something like, you know, it feels like we're hitting our heads against the wall. And he said, you know, he has this very bubbly personality. He said, you know, during the apartheid movement, we thought the same thing. We were banging our heads against the wall. But when I look back now, I realize that every time we did that, it was building the momentum, putting the straws in the camel's back that eventually led to this sudden transformation and the collapse of apartheid. So yes, so I'm with you on that, Pauline. That's what I hope as well. And that's what I believe will happen. Um, I just hope it happens sooner rather than later. Yeah, we want the tipping point for that to happen before the tipping point for the climate. <laughs> exactly. So we're getting to, we've, we've gone over an hour now, so I'd just like to kid you for a couple more minutes. I won't have to hold you for too much longer. Uh, this may be totally futile, but I'd like to try to distill what we've said. Yeah, I'd like to try to distill what, what, we've, what we've gone over. So we've talked about joy and engagement with nature. Um, Robert, you've talked about how your experience kind of corroborates in many ways the Pauline's philosophy, particularly with regards to building this relationship with nature, how it, this relationship is quantifiable. But you've also said that these, and you both agreed on this actually as well, that the shift in consciousness, while it's an important guide, is not going to be the solution on its own. It also needs to be partnered with policy action and, and action at all levels. I'd like to try to, to address the listeners and, and ask you, Robert, what do you think the individual can do? I know this is a huge question. What do you think the individual can do with respect to these issues to build their relationship with their environment or, or to foster their, their relationship with climate action to, to act? How can a listener motivate themselves to act? I think it absolutely is about connecting with nature. That has to be a part of it. Do you know, one thing I found is that some people who have problems with alcohol they, if you look at their, who they socialize with, how they spend their time, it's all their friends also focus on alcohol. And so they're in this little, in this circle of people who reinforce the problem rather than the solution. So I think as, again, trying to think practically, I think people should seek out that one way to make this happen, First of all, is what Pauline suggested, spend time in nature, make time to listen and sit and experience nature. And secondly, then to try and connect with others who are doing the same thing. It doesn't have to be on climate. It could be uh, nature, people who go on nature walks together or something, but begin establishing a community of people who are have experienced and are moving in the same direction with that with that reference point, that North Star that we were talking about in front of them. So, and I think that will help reinforce the positive steps you're taking, individuals are taking, listeners might be taking to move in this direction. I would agree with that. There's power in numbers and the very um, act of taking some action leads on, there's a kind of impetus, there's an, the inertia comes, you know, that you carry on. More, some action leads to more action leads to more action wonderful and as a last thing robert i would love for you to tell us about one of your epiphanies that you had that you mentioned in the very beginning you talked about some epiphanies it's, in nature that you'd experienced it's going to sound really trite i guess maybe <laughs> if, maybe if other people have experienced this then they um 
they will they'll appreciate that even though it may sound trite, it wasn't experienced that way, or I didn't experience it that way. But I used to often go hiking on my own and camping, actually, on my own when I was younger. And there was one trip, we were living in California at the time, in Los, um, in, where we went into the Sierra Nevada mountains and did a, just with a backpack, camped, pitched my tent, and then just did a bit of wander after I'd collected some firewood. And I just sat, found this beautiful spot where it just felt wonderful, just felt like the right place to sit. After sitting there for quite a while, suddenly feeling uh, it's, I don't know whether, and, and I still have trouble even remembering the feeling exactly, but I think it was kind of a, not quite a dissolving of myself, but really a merging of myself with everything around me and not just living things, everything. And there were no drugs involved, I should point out straight away. <laughs> it, and it was just a really profound moment. And it did not last very long. It was relatively short, but it was really profound. And it just felt uh, just that sense of connection with everything is such a, was such a profound feeling that I still seek but it's almost as if it's, it's hard to reconnect with that at times. Even I've even sat for hours thinking, uh, hoping to feel that. But anyway, that's my, that was my epiphany moment, which was really a wonderful experience. Thank you, Robert. And Pauline, what do you think? Does that sound like? Uh... Oh, yes, I, I empathize with that. I, I, I had a similar experience. I had this project going called Embodied Values, and we were planning a conference on it. We were trying to think about what the conference was going to be about. And <laughs> I was walking back to philosophy, and I still remember it walking along by George Square and that dissolving of the boundaries between me and the rest of the environment. It all became one. And it was really quite a mystical experience almost. Yeah. So, and all the senses were were involved. You know, I was seeing the trees, but well, I was experiencing, I was the experience and the trees were part of my experience. So that was really quite similar to, to Robert's experience. So we ended up having a, a conference on, on the census. <laughs> we just <laughs> census. Perfect. But a similar experience was much young, younger walking down South Clark Street <laughs> to get all my thoughts when I'm walking. Um, I was trying to think myself into an idealist position where there's only mind and body doesn't exist. And there I was walking down South Clark Street and suddenly it was like I was just, my mind was just this tiny little point. And instead of me walking down the street, the images were coming at me. <laughs> so there was an illusion of motion, but actually no motion at all. So that, that again was a, a, a loosening of the boundaries and a, a realization that our experiences are not just our experiences of ourselves, but the environment is part. That's wonderful. And those both sound like such wonderful experiences. I, I'm not sure if I've had anything like that, but I look forward to it in the future. <laughs> Got to do some more solo camping, I guess. Um, I, I think uh, we can stop it there guys thank you so much for joining me i think we covered a lot of ground that i really enjoyed um hearing you guys discuss and thank you very much for your time thanks pauline thanks, thanks robert we hope you all enjoyed this episode we'd like to thank dr pauline femster and dr robert glasser for their time and contributions 
This podcast is sponsored by the Pax Natura Foundation. To learn more about the Pax Natura Foundation, go to paxnatura.org or get in touch with us online via email at podcast at paxnatura.org.